2: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people, my friends, I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job is not to entertain, but educate and teach you. So call me at one 800 73 C B C. Maybe tweet me at Jim Kramer. Every rally has a life cycle. At first, it's led by the strongest companies out there. Right now, that's the Magnificent Seven. They're still at the forefront as the market stage a decent rally. Dow advancing 173 points, s and climbing 0.46%, NASDAQ getting 0.70%. That's ahead of tomorrow's Fed meeting. But then as the rally goes on, the strength extends to others in the same ballpark. Think semiconductors, cybersecurity, enterprise software. We then get a further broadening out of the rally away from tech, in this stupendous run, buyers converge on a curious admixture of cyclical stocks, homebuilders, aerospace, and the railroads. All aboard! As the advance continues, more left-behind groups start playing catch-up. Think heavy industries, materials, travel, and leisure. Because this rally is centered on moderating interest rates, the retailers then advance as they survive on their credit and the credit of their customers. Therefore, they thrive when rates go lower. And hey, then it extends to the banks, which got crushed by the Fed's rapid-fire rate hikes more on the banks later. Even the drug stocks have joined the parade thanks to takeovers in the GOP-1 diabetes and weight-loss drugs. And then the food stocks throw off the GOP-1 shackles, and they have their day in the sun. Finally, after all this institutional hoopla, we get to where individuals, so-called retail investors, are buying stocks en masse. In this case, the most since 2022. buy, 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 buy! And that's where we are in the life cycle right now. I have to tell you, I always hope that they go for higher quality companies when these investors come in, like the ones we know for the Travel Trust, which you can follow by joining the CBC Investing Club. We don't speculate. That's not usually what happens. These late to the rally investors seek seek quick wins. They often gravitate to to just pure speculation. And in a nod to the memesters of old, they seek stocks with large short positions, trying to engineer another GameStop. Yeah, that stock infamously soared from the single digits to the 400s in a few weeks' time. So the siren song of an overly shorted stock beckons, even if it is a huge money loser. At the same time, these new buyers want to own quickly So, you know, I met with about 100 individuals this weekend when I signed bottles for my wife's Mezcal brand in Dallas, Texas. And while many wanted to know about our position in Magnificent 7, especially NVIDIA, a preponderance wanted my blessing on different cryptocurrencies or crypto-adjacent stocks. I couldn't give it to them. I never like to see this kind of speculative frenzy because of what it represents. Remember, I'm tracing the life cycle of a rally here, and rallies tend to stop once the rank speculation gets too heavy. I see that happening now. (laughs) Let's go back to the fuel that's kept this rally going, the possible peak in interest rates. When the Fed meets tomorrow, if it doesn't show any sign of toughness, if it dismisses the cooler inflation numbers like today's CPI, consumer price index, you need to brace yourself for a sell-off. And the epicenter of the decline will not be the solid stocks that deserve to go higher. It'll be the most speculative stocks that have already had huge runs. What exactly am I talking about here? Let's get granular, okay? I'm going to give you some of them. My- I want to start with the firm holdings. That's the buy now, pay later outfit. They look like road as the Fed raised interest rates. People believe the firm's borrowers would default on their short term loans, and the company attracted a legion of short sellers who assumed the Fed would never stop tightening. But a firm is run by Max Levchin. He's a frequent guest on Mayor Money, and he's got a very good handle on things. Not a lot of defaults. So the shorts, and 22% of the float is still currently shorter, appear to be on the wrong side of the trade. When a firm reported a quarter with no real degradation in credit quality. They know nothing. The stock's now nearly 125% since the end of October. Is that sustainable? I don't think so. But the short busters imbued with the power of panic short sellers simply don't care. If you own a firm, guess what? I think you should take profits sell, 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 sell. because it's a highly speculative stock that's highly hostage to interest rates. For me, it firms the poster child for this late stage of the rally—a money-losing company with a risky stock that's up huge because successful short-busting, and it could go down huge if the Fed says the wrong thing. Hey, then there's Coinbase. Now, people who want a stock that gives you the bang of crypto have gravitated to Coinbase with its 15% short position and its in-your-face attitude toward the SEC. The company itself, though, does not make money. The stock's up 81% since October, based on a correlation with the rally in crypto. If you buy Coinbase now, guess what? I think you're late to the party. Hey, next, let's talk about Beyond Meat, one of the bigger busts of our era. These guys seem immunized against profitability, hence the 45% short position. This one is a real GameStop feel. Left behind, thought to be on its last legs. No wonder it's up nearly 77% in less than a month and a half. What else? Okay, we recently spoke to David Brisher. He's the new CEO of Lyft, which is Uber's much smaller rival. Once again, I was impressed with his vision, and I like his execution. Many people want to see a viable competitor to Uber, and I think Lyft can only break either, despite its continual losses. But does the stock deserve a 52% gain since the end of October? Yes, if you think the considerable basis short sellers are still frantically covering their, their positions. No, if you think that process is almost done. I don't know. Take, I, look, I, I, like I said, I like it. The company's going to make money. But wow, what a run. Hey, how about Lemonade, the insurance company that says it uses artificial intelligence to figure out policies? Lemonade captivated so many younger investors in the last big speculative wave during COVID. The company's losing fortunes with a loss of $3.58 per share expected for this year. And that's why 33% of the stock's float is sold short, making it a clear GameStop-like meme target, which is how Lemon, like Lemonade, can rally 60% since October on not much more than a hope and a vague AI kicker. Please don't forget Upstart, a company that uses AI to make loans and seems addicted to losing money. That's why the stock plunged to $11 and change in May. Oh, but now it's back up to $35, up 48% just since the end of October, without any sign of profit in sight. Upstart needs actual rate cuts if its numbers are ever going to catch up to its stock price, and I don't think that cavalry is coming anytime soon. Hey, then there's Carvana. Many thought the digitally used car dealer that struggles to make money was a dead man walking. The Shorts figured that this one was flat on the canvas when the stock sank to $3 and changed at the end of last year. Like GameStop, they refused to ring the register and forgetting that bulls make money and bears make money. But hogs, well, guess what? Hogs, they get slaughtered. The stock's 46% gain since the end of October is leading a whole different group of hogs to the Oscar Mayer section of the supermarket. Please take profits. Finally, I have to consider Roku part of the speculative cohort as it's spewing losses. No plans to get profitable. That's it, with all this cord cutting, people are desperate to find a way to play it. And the speculators, they've seized on Roku, which is why this stock's gone from around $60 to just over $100 since the end of October. The short position is humongous, around 10% of the float, but that's still a lot of short sellers, and they're clearly hurting. It feels like a lot of buying is short covering. When it's done, I bet the stock heads lower. Bottom line, I just gave you the anatomy of a rally. We just don't want it to be an obituary of the rally. If stocks are levitating on a combination of short squeezes and Johnny-come-lately buying, and there's not selling from the people who are being greedy right now, take it from this one-time obituary writer. The funeral parlor beckons. I want to go to Roger, Minnesota. Roger.
1: Hey, Jim. Appreciate being on the program. I have uh, I have two stocks for you today. Um, one of them, I just don't know what the heck to do with, so I actually sold out of my position, and that's Celsius. I bought some right after their last earnings report, which was another excellent earnings report. I mean, the company's growing 100% year over year, but the stock can't move. I don't know if they need to put uh, AI behind their
2: ticker symbol or what. <laughs> That'd be something. But look, I mean, here, look, Celsius really kind of appeals to me because uh, PepsiCo's got a big position in it. But there is a giant 23% short, and there are lots of people whispering about how this company is not doing that well. I don't know about that. I think if Pepsi gets in it, then it's fine. But I've got to tell you, it's the shorts versus longs and a real tug of war. That off, I don't so like so I so 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 Battleground. We've seen the rally extend to some of the most speculative spaces in the market. It could be an indicator that the life cycle of this rally is nearing its end. On Mid Money tonight, yesterday we saw the first funding delivered from the Chips and Science Act. So I'm going straight to the source with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to get an update on semiconductors, Our Relationship with China, what to expect in the new year. Then the last couple of months have been pretty bullish for the market with long yields beginning to come back to earth. So could this move be sustained or should investors be prepared to handle a changing market environment? I'm going off the charts on the bond market to get a sense of where things could be headed. And what the heck happened to the IPO market in the back half of the year? I'm giving you my take on the group that seemed to have a very promising start to 2023 and then fizzled out. So stay with
1: Kramer. miss a second of mad money follow at jim kramer on x have a question tweet kramer hashtag mad mentions send jim an email to mad at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC miss something head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: when you're hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search Match.
2: Yesterday, we saw the first big payoff of the Chips and Science Act, the big semiconductor bill that Congress passed in August of last year, with the federal government providing $35 million to help BAE Systems boost production at the New Hampshire factory. It makes chips for fighter planes. I expect to be the first of many as the Commerce Department sorts the world of subsidy applications. What matters, though, is that the money's finally being spent on shoring up our domestic semiconductor capacity, and I love it. I got a chance to just sit down with U.S. Commerce, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo earlier today to learn more about the CHIPS Act and our tricky trading relationship with China. Take a look. Secretary Raimondo, welcome back to Mad Money.
3: Great to be with you, as always.
2: Well, thank you so much. I want to tell you that I, I've been very impressed with the implementation of the CHIPS law. I want to talk about this new plan, e-plant in New Hampshire. How did it come about? What does it mean for America?
3: It's huge. This is huge. So we've entered a new phase of implementation for chips. We're putting money out the door, backing uh, some of the best companies in the world to expand in the United States. This particular announcement that I made yesterday in New Hampshire will allow BAE to quadruple the number of chips that they make in America. And those are the chips that go into F-15s, F-35s, satellites, all kinds of military equipment that you know, Jim, need to be made in the United States.
2: Well, I think it's incredibly important. I found myself thinking, where are some of the chips coming from right now that, that you're replacing? Uh,
3: you know, China, Taiwan, uh. other parts of Asia. Uh, it's, that's what keeps us up at night, and that's why we're working so fast to make sure we expand chip production uh, right here in the United States. We dis- You know, as you know, We have some of the best chip design companies in America, best chip software companies in America. But we have to get back into the business of making and packaging chips in America.
2: Well, look, I I think the intellectual property is American. I think that others want our intellectual property, particularly the Chinese. So let's discuss what happened at your dinner in San Francisco, because I was hoping that there would be a cessation of what I would regard as being uh, ill-advised acts by the Chinese, but I'm not sure there has been.
3: Yeah, well, um, that we, we weren't hoping for magic, Jim. We were just hoping for a little bit of progress, and I think we, re- we got a little bit of progress. Uh, President Biden had, I think, a very productive, constructive, candid, direct discussion with President Xi. I was able to be part of that meeting. I spent hours with my counterpart, and we said to them, listen, actions speak louder than words. President Xi and his ministers said to us they want more foreign direct investment, they want U.S. companies to do business there. We said to them, show us. You know, don't tell us, show us, right? Don't rip off our IP. Have a regulatory environment that's fair and not arbitrary and capricious. Don't target U.S. companies. Uh, And so we began the dialogue, which is a good step. Nothing good will happen if we don't even talk. We've seen a little progress. You saw the VMware uh, acquisition by Broadcom approved. You see MasterCard being allowed to do business there, expand their digital business. But we have a long way to go, Jim. And I think, you know, they they need to show us if they're serious that they want us to do business there. And that means protecting IP.
2: Madam Secretary, what I'm concerned about is, for instance, right after the dinner, we spoke with. Palo Alto Networks and CrowdStrike. Those are the two most sophisticated companies in terms of uh, cybersecurity. And both of them said there's uh, actually no let up whatsoever in hacking after that dinner.
3: I can't say that I'm surprised. I mean, I I do hear from CEOs. I meet with a couple of CEOs every week who've either just come back from China or call me or thinking of going. And they report uh, similarly, you know, Uh. similarly that It's getting harder to do business in China, not easier. But we're not going to let up. You know, Jim, as you know, I'm a dog on a bone. Oh, I know that. U.S. business deserves an advocate. They deserve a fair shake. We're not asking for any special treatment. We just want a level playing field, and we're going to keep making the case. They're not
2: used to someone like you. You know business. You're tough. You're not willing to give in. You're not trying to get into that market so much as to protect our country and get into our market. And I can tell what is the first priority. And you're very clear. And they don't know what to do with you.
3: (laughs) I get that a lot, Jim. I don't know. I get that a lot from a lot of people. But what you said is exactly right. National security first. I'm not negotiating. When I was there, they asked me to water down our export controls on semiconductors. No, that's an easy answer. No, we're not going to do that. But we expect you to treat U.S. companies fairly. You know, we don't expect you to raid a U.S. business, arrest people and not explain why. That's not fair. And so we're going to just continue to make the case. Well,
2: one of the things that, look, let's go back to the intellectual property. What do we really do well in this country? We create, now it's implemented and made in other places, but I was shocked to see, Well, there's a Deutsche Bank piece that came out yesterday. They do fine work. The the U.S. has increased selling to China dramatically in 2023 to up 46 percent. For, for wafer equipment. Now, how do we know that they're not getting current and leading edge and that it's trailing edge?
3: Well, what you said, you, you should come work with me, Jim, because this is what I obsess about every day. It is, this is what we track. We track every single piece of equipment. We enforce every single export control with our allies, in this case, especially the Dutch and the Japanese and the Koreans, and we have to make certain that all they're getting is equipment to make, you know, older versions of chips, not the EUV equipment, which would allow them to make the cutting edge, leading edge chips.
2: Well, that brings me right to NVIDIA, which I think is the jewel of the crown of our semiconductor companies. Of late, there's been talk about export, export controls and what can be sold, and I want to be sure that some people, I think, are overstating your comments from a couple Saturdays ago about what you allow NVIDIA to do. Do you think NVIDIA is a good actor? Do you think they're willing to work with you on export restrictions? Are you happy with what they're doing?
3: Yes, yes, and yes. It's a great American company. They, we talk to them frequently. They don't want to do anything that violates export controls. You know, look, Jim, right now, America leads the world in AI. Let's, like, let's remember that. It's the U.S. private sector innovation ecosystem that allows us to lead the world in AI. It doesn't mean they can do whatever they want. Obviously, they have to play by the rules, et cetera. But we also have to enable them to be competitive, be productive, make money, sell what they can to other countries, including China, as long as it doesn't interfere with our national security. I know that NVIDIA wants to comply with our export controls. I know they're a good citizen, and, but we also have to make sure that they can continue to compete and innovate and lead the world. And that's why we have a lot of back and forth with them uh, to make sure we can achieve both goals.
2: Excellent. Now, the weakest part of our defense, I regard and always have, is the military supply chain that goes through Taiwan. Now, I know you're an advocate for Taiwan. Taiwan Semi is a great friend of America. But Taiwan Semi does a lot of business with China. How can we be sure that Taiwan is not just a choke point, stop it as a choke point and make sure that we're not hostage to Taiwan, as great a country as it is, it's very close to China, and the Chinese think they own it?
3: Yeah. Well, we, we need TSMC to continue to expand in the United States operate on our shores with American workers in the U.S. with a separate facility. Uh, But beyond that, we need uh, other companies like Intel, our national champion, to make make these chips on our shores. And really, critically, Jim, we need the whole ecosystem. It's not just making the chips. It's the chemical companies, the wafer companies, the tooling companies. So that's what my mission is. You know, you'll know a few years from now, if we've been successful, if we have a large and deep ecosystem of leading-edge manufacturing in the United States, plus wafer supply in the U.S., chemical supply in the U.S., talent supply in the U.S., that's what we're playing for. I'm not playing small ball. We want to play for the whole—the whole ecosystem, including talent and engineering talent so that, as you say, we won't be dependent on that choke point.
2: All right, so let's speak to what's next. You've got a lot of money to give out. You've got some really terrific people. KKR, Goldman, these are who I was hoping to be involved. I'm sure some really excellent people who actually make chips. What's going to happen next for you and our country?
3: By the way, thank you for saying that. Um, In in less than a year, I've recruited 200 people to come work here full-time in the government, six, seven days a week. Uh, from some of the leading tech firms, you know, Wall Street firms, business firms in the country, they're all patriots, and they're doing it, you know, because they're patriots. What comes next is a lot of announcements next year. So yesterday was our first announcement. Super exciting. We're live. All systems go. January, February, March, April, um, look out for more announcements.
2: Well, Madam Secretary, we will look out for more announcements, and I am a patriot, too, so when I hear you say I should come work with you, I say to myself, I I want to do what's right for the country, because you're doing what's right for the country, and you're very inspirational to make everybody, left, right, doesn't matter, to work for this country. I want to thank you so much, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. It is fantastic that you came on our show.
3: Thank you, Jim. Happy holidays. Same
2: to you. Mayor Vonnie back after the break.
1: Coming up, will the greenback relax and give oil a break from heavy headwinds? Kramer goes off the charts with an approach you won't want to miss. Next.
3: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American
0: Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card.
2: For the better part of the last two months, stocks have roared higher. That's in large part because we escaped from the shadow of a bad bond market. Remember, the bond market is much bigger than the stock market. And for months leading to the October bottom, long-term treasuries were just hideous, with prices plummeting and interest rates soaring. Now, all of that changed in late October when bond prices started rebounding, allowing long rates to come back down. And as I said at the top of the show, an environment where long rates are coming down creates a much better backdrop for your stocks. So can the bond rally continue, or is this move getting played out? That's a hugely important question for the stock market, which is why we got to figure this out. You know what we're going to do? We're going to try to answer it by going off the charts with the help of Carly Garner, a terrific technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and most important, someone who's been dead right. See, a little over a month ago, she told us to stick with the SP 500, and she nailed it. And if you remember, back in September, she called the peak in oil. I mean, sweet crude call. What does Garner think of treasury bonds right now? She acknowledges that they've gone from being a hot potato asset nobody wanted to hold to something that staged a historically sharp rally. And as she sees it, this rally is made possible by capitulation. As bond prices plummeted and rates soared in the fall, investors panicked and sold treasuries like there was no tomorrow. Many money managers outright shorted them. That eventually created a coiled spring situation where everybody wanted to sell it already sold, meaning treasury prices only had one way to go, higher, no supply. And you know what? Money managers are still pretty darn bearish on treasuries. I want you to take a look at this weekly chart of the 10-year treasury note futures. With the CFTC commitments of traders uh, data down here, that's called the COT report. See, we love the COT report because it tells us exactly how home gamers, professional money managers, and commercial hedgers are positioned. The green line at the bottom represents the net position of large speculators, meaning the pros. Now, look at this. Garner points out that the large speculators got very, very bearish on the tenure in the summer and fall. In fact, this was the biggest net short position we've seen since 2018, near the end of the Fed's late, right? rate hike cycle. So you have to go back here. I'm sorry. You go back here. And this is where they were like they overdid. it's what I want to say. They overdid their negativity. Right. So what happened back then? From late 2018 through early 2020, these bearish money managers gradually flipped from short to long, causing the tenure to rally 20 points, which is huge for fixed income, while the yield on the tenure fell by more than 250 basis points. Garner's not necessarily saying we're going to repeat that same move, but she notes the money managers remain extremely bearish on the tenure. See, they still have an extremely large net short position in the futures. And she wouldn't be surprised at all if the yield in the 10-year can fall 250 basis points from its high, simply because the short side of the trade got overcrowded. Why do we care? Okay, look, that stretch from late 2018 through the end of 2019 was fabulous for the stock market. So this could be, you might be able to say we're on the same trajectory. That is certainly good news. Now, when you zoom out and look at the monthly chart of the 10-year Treasury futures, Garner likes what she sees. Check out the Relative Strength Index that's at the bottom, Okay, Uh, And it's an important momentum indicator. It's now got upward momentum, but it's barely out of oversold territory. See, it's still all the way down here. Uh, In other words, even after the last couple of months, the 10-year is a long, long way from being overbought. It means it's not done going higher. Now, Garner thinks we're looking at a wholesale trend change, although she sees a ceiling resistance. I know these are very clumsy looking, but let's bear with me here. She sees a ceiling resistance at 111.15. Uh, now, that would translate, this is what you need to know, to a 4% yield, okay? Thanks to that ceiling, she expects some near-term consolidation as the 10-year gradually works up another head of steam. Where can it go? In general, she sees the short sellers gradually unwinding their positions, which will steadily push the price of the 10-year higher. Remember, rates go down, bond goes higher. The next big resistance level kicks in at 117. Okay, now what does that correlate to? A 3.25% yield. Wow, that would be something. Gardner actually thinks it's possible the tenure to get it, it, to get there without any additional action from the Fed. In other words, Fed don't have to cut. Just as the bond market did the heavy lifting when long rates soared earlier this year, it can do the same on the way down. And if the Fed starts cutting short rates anytime soon, Garner could see the 10-year going to 124, yield roughly 2%. I've certainly seen this kind of move before. When the Fed beats inflation and stops tightening, we tend to get phenomenal bond rallies to push long-term interest rates lower. That is what I call nirvana for the stock market, halcyon times. What about the other big picture issue? It's is a strong dollar. Check out the weekly chart of the dollar index. Most industries like a weak dollar because it makes it easier for our businesses to compete with foreign companies. Unfortunately, when rates were soaring, that propped up the value of the dollar versus other currencies. With long rates now going lower, Garner says that will put downward pressure on the dollar. Yes, and that's something we already see. With the economy getting back to more normal levels of inflation, she sees the dollar index headed still lower. The relative strength index here has got quite a ways to go before it gets oversold. If we do get that dip in the dollar, it is driven for energy, materials, metals, and all sorts of securities, including companies like Procter & Gamble. And that's a charitable trust holding with a gigantic exposure to currencies worldwide that has really been hurt. Buy a strong dollar. Hey, now, why don't we talk about oil specifically? Take a look at this chart of the seasonal pattern in the March crude oil futures going back 30 years. You can see that typically oil turns bullish in the second or third week of December. Sound familiar? Now, I know crude's being pulverized, including today. But take a look at the monthly chart of the West Texas Intermediate Crude Futures. Garner says that oil's mostly stayed within a given trading range since the bottom of 2015. See, look at this. Even though fracking, supply glut, it's still hanging out here. That's with the exception of some crazy action during COVID and the invasion of Ukraine. Unless we get another black swan type event, another one, one that's highly unlikely, like Ukraine. Or, uh, she expects oil to hold above its floor of support, which is at 68. All right. Right. We are. For example, today's beatdown. we might actually be looking at the lows well, it's possible it can dip below that level before things turn around. But if crude holds above $68 pretty much where it is now, Garner's betting it'll head higher. With the next big ceiling resistance at around $100 a barrel, I mean, that would be straight up. That would be not so great for the stock market. It would be certainly uh, easier for oil to get there with Treasury yields and, and the dollar both getting weaker. Hey, by the way. Garner also noticed noticed that the correlation between oil and natural gas has gotten much stronger over the last 30 days. They now trade in the same direction about 90 percent of the time. That's unusual. So if oil rebounds, natural gas should rebound, too. While I'm with it on Treasury yields and the dollar, I'm certainly not rooting for higher energy prices. I'll take all the deflation we can get. Here's the bottom line. The charts interpreted by Carly Garner suggests that this more benign bond market could have a lot more staying power, which translates directly into a weaker dollar, both things that are great for the stock market. And she wouldn't even be surprised to see oil bottoming right here, right here. Might seem hard to believe. But then again, who believed that long term interest rates were about to peak two months ago? Wow. What a bunch of great calls by Carly Garner. I got to hand it to her. I want to speak to Zach in Pennsylvania. Zach. Hey, Jim, big booyah from Eagles Nation. How are you? Uh, I am fine. A little beaten down from Sunday's action, but that's okay. We're 10-3. How can I help you? Awesome. So I'm looking well, about 20-year horizon here, 20 years of homework and hold and all that. I'm a little worried about the 20-year projection on oil. My stock is Phillips 66. Well, you know, 20-year projection, yeah, because you're probably thinking that we're going to be driving all EV cars and stuff, and I don't blame you for being worried. I don't take a 20-year projection for anything oil-related because of the possibility that EV takes over. That said, short term, at least in the next year, uh, I think that Phillips 66 is what I call up stock because I happen to like the refining companies very much. Thank you for the nice question. All right, the charges interpreted by Carly Garner suggested both Treasury yields and the dollar have more room to the downside. Which normally translates into more upside for your stock portfolio. Much more made money yet. How should you prepare yourself for the IPOs of 2024? I'm setting you up with a preview of what to expect. Ben, looking for opportunity in this tape? I've spotted an underappreciated corner of this market that I think investors could bank on ha, in the coming months. And all your calls, of course, rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lighting Round. So stay with Kramer. to the great IPO market of 2023. Earlier this year, it looked like we were finally getting some meaningful deals. But lately, they've evaporated, and the IPO experts at Renaissance Capital, they say we're almost certainly not going to get any big ones before the end of the year. Only one small Chinese outfit's come in public this week. M- disappointing. As we head into the end of the year, we've had 106 IPOs uh, for companies larger than $50 million, raising a collective $19.4 billion. Now, that's up massively from 71 deals that only raised $7.7 billion in 2022. Historically, <laughs> this year's totals still represent weaker numbers, but a recovery has to start somewhere. When you drill down, there were 28 larger offerings that raised $100 million or more. Those are the ones that you and I care about. On average, they're up nearly 16% for the year, although nearly all of that's from the first day spike. If you measure from the close of the first day of trading, the big IPOs are actually down 0.1% on average. But I don't want to make it sound like they're all duds because we've had some notable winners in the class of 2023. For example, one of my favorites, Arm Holdings, the chip designer that made for the largest deal of the year and the fourth largest IPO for the past decade, increasingly looks like a success story. Arm priced at $51, then traded up to $63 and changed on its first day. I told you to wait for a pullback to, to the low to mid-50s. It actually pulled back to the 40s as the whole tech complex rolled over before finally bottoming in October. Now, we stuck with the stock even when Wall Street decided it didn't like the first quarter out of the gate in early November. When CEO Rene Haas came on May Money. he told a very compelling story. I hope you'll listen, because while the stock sold off hard the next day, it's now rebounded to just under $65. I like the fundamental story here because Arm is a key part of the semiconductor food chain, and most of the industry now seems to be turning. I still like this stock. A close partner, by the way, to Kramer, Fave, NVIDIA, and a company that's expanding like mad. Rene Haas is not going in the right direction. Next, there's Kava Group. You may know them as the Mediterranean restaurant chain. It came public in June and was way too hot out of the gate. That's very worrisome. Nearly doubling on its first day. Then, as the market sold off from August through October, the stock plunged from $58 to $29. got cut in half. Since then, the story has improved substantially, and you heard all the key positives if you listened to our interview with Ron Sheik. He's the founder of Panera Bread, who's now the chairman of Kava Group. I told you I liked the story, but the lockup on insider selling was about to expire in early December, which is why I warned you to wait before you pulled the trigger. Sure enough, Kava pulled back from $37 early last week to $32 as of last night's close. I think anticipation of today's lockup expiration. But with the lockup expiration now complete, investors piled back into the stock, sending it up more than $6 or 20%. The stock could have some more volatility over the next few days and weeks, but any weakness that comes from it should now be officially considered a buying opportunity. Buy, buy, buy! I think you can buy some actually right here and then wait to see if it drops from more un- in- insider sellers. Finally, we also kept you out of a couple of duds, namely Savers Value Village. That's a private equity backed thrift store chain. It's down nearly 12% from where it came public. And more important, it's plunged more than 30% from the close on its first day of trading. Who ever heard of a for profit thrift store? I'm you away from Maple Bear, too, which you know is Instacart. That's proven to be one of the worst IPOs of the year. Down almost 22% from where it came public and more than 30% from its first day close. <laughs> which is when I told you know I told you to stay the heck away from it. I also put Kenview in this territory. That's the J&J consumer product spinoff. I initially punted on this one, saying to wait until J&J sold its stake in the company. I, and we sold our stake in J&J for the Travel Trust. I am glad I told you to wait here, because we've seen fresh lawsuits levied against Kenview, which is why if you want to own one of these big uh, consumer spinoffs, may I suggest you'd rather go with Halion, formerly the Consumer Health Division of, of GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer. What can I say? Kenview's down close to 6% from where it came public, down 23% from the close of the first day of trading. That's brutal. Hey, and don't forget, Parent j j just gave a very bullish analyst meeting, but the stock fell anyway over talc litigation and its alleged linkage to asbestos and cancer. Now, I, I didn't get them all right, I was too bullshit on a company called Oddity Tech. That's the Israeli tech-enabled cosmetics business, which saw its stock fall from $48 when I recommended it in July down to $24 and changed its slows in October, although now it's rebounded to $39 still. It wasn't good. Oddity's got a couple solid cosmetics brands and a nice mix of growth and profitability. But the lockup on insider selling expires next month, so this is not the time to stick your neck out. And we were too negative on Birkenstock. That's the German sandal maker. Like Kav, I worry the deal will be overhyped. When Birkenstock came public at 46 and fell to 40 on its first day of trading, that looked like the right diagnosis. But once it pulled back, the stock quietly has been able to rebound to $48 and change. It's now up 21% from its first close. That's it. You know what? I still need convincing that Birkenstock's newfound popularity, especially with young women, is anything more than a fad driven by the imprimatur of the movie Barbie. Yes, that pick was that big that it could influence sales. Plus, I'm worried about getting hosed by the private equity sponsor, which still owns a big stake. We've been right to be worry about these private equity sponsors all the way. Now, with 2023 almost over, what's the IPO class of 2024 going to look like? Hey, we got some major deals coming, including the Chinese-turned-Singaporean fast-fashion powerhouse Shein, Plus, uh, other consumer-facing companies like Kim Kardashian's underwear and shapewear company, Skims, and -and up-and-coming athleisure brand, Viore, that I think that could be steaming hot. And the sparkling water play known as liquid death, Murder Your Thirst? We also might get IPOs from some major tech firms like Databricks, a snowflake rival that we just spoke with a few weeks ago. That one will be hot, hot, hot. And Stripe, the, the financial technology powerhouse, has been a rumored deal for a few years now. Then they're in the digital media plays that seem tailor-made to become meme stocks like Reddit and Discord. Hey, even General Atlantic, a major private equity firm, is thinking about coming public next year, and that one could be a total home run. But what stands out to me after reviewing the 2023 IPO market is the fact that things seem fair right now. It's not impossible for IPOs to do well, like it might have been for most of last year. But it's also not a given that IPOs will do well, which is how it felt during the go-go days of 2020 and 2021, where people lost so much money. Bottom line. Investors seem to be reviewing each deal on its own merits, which is frankly all we can ask for. If a company has a compelling story, good numbers, and a fairly valued stock, you can make money after it comes public. But if the investment bankers get too greedy, then you might get hit with big losses. Not too hot, not too cold. When the IPOs start coming again next year, I hope they stay exactly the same, which is
1: just right. Mad Money is back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls. And the sky's the limit. It's a fast-fire lightning round. Next.
2: It is time. It's time for the lightning round. We'll be right Play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? It's time for the lightning round. Kramer's in Miami. going to start with Bob in Florida. Bob. Uh, Booyah, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for Um, calling, Bob.
1: Yeah, I'm a member of the investing club. And uh, I've called in a few times, and everyone I've dealt with on your staff is terrific. So
0: please, Ah. give give
1: me my compliments. But I'm calling about a stock that you have recommended repeatedly. And um, it's in the charitable trust. And despite its poor performance since it hit a high all the way back in April, you bought more of it. The beginning of October, beginning of November, it was. And um, I want to know, what do you think? It's been up the last three trading days. But what's your crystal ball say about the future of GE Healthcare?
2: This stock is mispriced. I mean, when you think about what has to happen, if you're going to get one of these Alzheimer's drugs, which you're going to need an MRI, contrast MRI, GE Healthcare is going to be the way you're going to be able to get it. And that's just an unbelievable business. So I think you have to own that stock. Let's go to Rajiv in Florida. Rajiv. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Rajiv? What's up? Oh, I just wanted to ask
1: about First Solar. It looks like it's caught in some red tape here. Uh, I think it's going
2: down because of oil going down, and if oil bottoms, I think you have a win. But why buy a stock that's levered to something that we have no control over? Let's go to Mickey in Maryland. Mickey! Happy Hanukkah, Professor Kramer. Oh, right back at you. Thank you. I'm a person of faith, and I pray for the Lord's favor for you and Lisa and your children. Thank you. Thank you um, so much, sir. for your insight Thank you. on a defense stock that reported last week. They beat on the numbers. They had a positive forecast for the upcoming year. But after that, the stock has declined 11%. Uh, percent. What is your uh, insight on Aero Environmental? First, I want to thank you very much for your heartfelt wishes. It means a great deal to me and to my family. Aero Environment, I thought, had a very good quarter. I think it was profit-taking. I think that their uh, their drone business is terrific, and uh, Mr. Nawabi is just doing a terrific job, so I would be a buyer of the stock. Let's go to Nathan in Pennsylvania. Nathan. Hey, Jim. It's been a while since I was last on the show with you. Great to be back on with you. Ah, thank hey. you. Given the uh, $10 billion buyback and the fact that they pulled out of the uh, potential merger with Humana, how much more run does the stock of Cigna have? Okay, I thought that buyback was humongous, but you know what? It's just gained so much from it that I would rather ring the register than buy the stock. That's all I can say. Let's go to Lucas in Minnesota. Lucas. Hey, Jim. Lucas. Green Greenfoot Quarter Tuesday to you. I have Mike in Matt, What's uh, going on? Well, I'm not much of a fan of the new stock crawler, but back when the old one was up, I found a wonderful sleeper for a company called Command, K-A-M-N. Why doesn't anyone talk about this stock? It's got a terrific aerospace business. I really like it. And I've got to tell you, it's dirt cheap uh, when it comes to what it can earn, not what it's earning right now. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the
1: Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Coming up, Kramer follows a trail of trends right to where the action is. Consider the tantalizing financials when Mad Money returns.
2: Funny thing about investors, they tend to get bored. They always search for something new. You might think people would prefer to stand pat with the old winners, but at a certain point, they survey the landscape and search for undervalued stocks among the names that have been left behind. These investors leave footprints, footprints that you can see in the charts. And right now, the footprints are leading right to the financials. That's where we can find the best opportunities. At the moment, even the best financial stocks are trading at about half the price earnings multiple that the market is currently paying for the S P 500. Why is that? Four reasons. First, everybody's been terrified of the Fed for more than two years. When the Fed raises rates as rapidly as they have, depositors who are content to accept a pittance for their cash in, say, a savings account, realize now they're missing out on opportunities to earn much higher returns from certificates of deposit. So the banks have to pay them more money to keep the money. That's why the interest margin tends to lag if interest rates come up too quickly. Second, when the Fed tightens so aggressively, Wall Street naturally fears a recession. Remember all the hand-wringing about the inverted yield curve and the inevitability of the so-called hard landing? You never want to own the banks going into recession because when people lose jobs, they can't afford to pay their debts, and these companies end up with lots of non-performing loans and write-offs that crush profitability. This time, the banks were expected to take big hits on all lines of business. So far, that hasn't happened, though, because we still have ridiculously low unemployment, in the most suspect area commercial real estate never really crashed. Just this week, we had a once-dominant mall operator, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust declared bankruptcy for the second time in three years, and its assets will be given back to the banks that lend it money. These guys have lots of B-tier properties in the Philadelphia area, far from the best real estate, yet there are still buyers lined up for the assets. There's simply too much value in some of these spaces, even if it's clearly a waste to run them as shopping malls. Third reason the bank stocks have been hated, don't forget, we had actual bank runs this spring. They were too substantial and too egregious to ignore, but they did come to an end. The lack of subsequent bank failures and the avoidance of dividend cuts has solidified the banks as less risky investments, although not everybody's gotten the memo. Finally, this year investors have generally favored growth over value, and the banks are value stocks. So right now, value seems worthless, right? In part because we don't have many takeovers. We know the Justice Department and especially the FTC are downright hostile to mergers, which stinks for the banks because with any other regulators, this industry would be ripe for consolidation. Now, think of what's happened. With the exception of the fourth, no takeovers, all these objections are going away. They're vanishing. If you price the stock for a recession and you don't get one, that stock's going to go higher in value. There are no signs that bank earnings are getting hit. The larger players are even getting some IPOs now, possibly more refinancings for private equity portfolio companies. Good for the investment banking side. The hardline anti-merger FTC seems to have gotten softer. It just greenlit Pfizer's buy of c this morning after looking like it was going to try to spike the deal. But let's go back to the mindset. The banks haven't sold at such a big discount to the SP and 500 since the Great Recession. Right now, you can buy them betting people will pay more for those earnings later because the numbers now feel a lot more sustainable. And let's remember, if you think there's too much bullish enthusiasm for a lot of the market, too much retail money coming in, or that we're faced with a new world where the Fed's done raising rates and might even start cutting them soon, you could argue just as the banks were the worst on the way up. They could be the best on the way down. Hey, by the way, given how Biden's doing in the polls, I bet we spend the next year hearing about what would change with the Republican White House. Well, guess what? It would be the banks. The regulators would be much more pro-merger. They'd be much more forgiving, regardless of where you stand politically. That is good for the bank stocks. I like to say there's always a bull market summer, and I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now.